Would you stand for the reading of the gospel? Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Jesus said these words. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Do you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enlighten us, help us to understand your word revealed, that we might know who you are and might know who we are, and that we might live as your people for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would grab a seat. Good morning. So last week, um, on Saturday night, I called Ryan and said, I have the flu. And uh, so he stepped in and led uh, a great time of worship and prayer last night. And so I'm so grateful, or last week, so I'm so grateful for that. Um, I uh, appreciate many of you have been praying. Uh, some of you brought meals to our family. Everybody has had the flu at my house. Uh, I have recovered everything except my voice. Um, so we're going we're gonna to do our best this morning to, uh, to get through the scripture that the Lord has for us this morning, but I do just ask that you would bear with me, um, but I uh, just did want to say thank you for all your prayers and uh, for your care for my family. Um, if you are visiting with us, if you're a guest this morning, uh, just to catch you up, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, in particular right now, we're in what is now called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and in the Sermon on the Mount, which is not actually what Jesus refers to it. We've called it that now, but what Jesus referred to it as is, uh, is kind of the, the ways, the practices, the teachings of the kingdom, the teachings of the kingdom. And so what we've got here is Jesus inviting us in uh, to life with him, and then he's showing us what that life looks like as he teaches us, what it looks like, in other words, to live in a world that's governed by the supreme ethic of Jesus, which is love God and love your neighbor. And so he takes that ethic and he basically applies it to all these different aspects of life. So that's what we're looking at. Uh, And I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Uh, There's some blue Bibles in the seat backs near you. Grab one of those and open it up or open up on your phone. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Now, as you're um, getting there, just a a note Jesus has kind of gotten into this little rhythm with his teaching, and he always begins with these words, something like, you have heard it said. And he says that here, he says, you have heard it said. And what he's doing there is he's alerting us to the fact that he is turning things upside down, 
right? He is shifting the ground beneath our feet. This is what you've heard it said. This is how you think it works, but let me help you understand how it really works. And so he does that here again in verse 33. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. All right. Easy enough, right? So raise your hand if you swore an oath this week. Yeah, no problem. We're good. We don't have this problem. We don't have to deal with this, right? I mean, the, the, wing, the things we've been talking about up to this point have been things like what? Like anger, yeah? Things that we can connect with like, you know, lust, marriage, divorce, adultery, oaths. Eh, I think I'm good on that one. You might be feeling that as we enter into this because oaths are so, they're kind of anachronistic, right, to our culture. We, don't, we aren't a people who take a lot of oaths. Unless you were in court maybe this week and had to swear an oath to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God, you probably didn't have to make an oath this week. And I bring that up because it would be easy for us to kind of move past this one. And oftentimes that's what happens. Jesus and the teaching on oaths is probably not one you've heard a lot. So I think there's something really important here, in fact, for us, especially in light of where we are in our modern cultural moment. So does Jesus teaching about oaths have anything to say to us, even though we may not think of ourselves as people who make oaths? So let's look at this together. So the question, I think, is why does Jesus seem to have such a problem with oaths? He says, don't do it. Don't do it at all, is what he says. He doesn't uh, quote any particular scripture here, which is interesting. He makes this statement right off the bat about oaths. He says, don't break your oath, but fulfill the, the oath to the Lord that your vows have made. He quotes that passage. It's not an actual scripture verse. We've seen him do that before, but this case, he's paraphrasing a lot of ideas from a lot of different scriptures. And so he's keying in on this idea. He's summarizing several laws that appear in different places about making oaths. And I just want to highlight a couple of those. Deuteronomy 6, for example. Verse 13, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name you shall swear. Another example, Jeremiah 4, 1 and 2. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him and in him shall they glory. In other words, these verses are actually instructing people to do what? To make oaths, right? So this is instructing people how to make oaths, in particular how to make oaths in God's name, right? So what's going on here? How do we deal with what Jesus has said and then these passages from the Old Testament that actually instruct God's people to make oaths? So I think maybe it might be helpful for us to get a little cultural context. So realize, first of all, that in the first century, there's no photo, no video, no uh, audio evidence that you can present, right? Uh, disputes and agreements, in other words, depend on a person's word, depend totally on a person's word. And one way that you can strengthen your word, right, is by using an oath. So oaths were very common in Jesus' day because of that. But that leads to 
potential problems. So uh, let's think about it this way. Imagine you are a first century Jew, and you, you and your neighbor, you, you guys don't really get along. But uh, one day he comes and he knocks on your door and he says, um, you stole my sheep. I want my sheep back. Give me my sheep back. And you say, ah, I didn't steal your sheep. I have no idea what you're talking about. And he gets really upset and he says, well, I'm going to the town elders. So he goes to the town elders and he says, this guy, David, he stole my sheep. And I stand there and I say, elders, I, I have no idea what he's talking about. I didn't take his sheep. And he says, no, you stole my sheep. And I swear by the name of Yahweh and by the temple in Jerusalem that you stole my sheep. Now, what has happened? Why, in other words, would someone swear by God's name, take an oath by God's name? So basically what has happened here is that this individual is using God's name to validate his own claim. Does that make sense? So in other words, he's using the weight behind the name of God to lend weight and credibility to his own position. Now that in itself is not problematic because actually that's instructed, that 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 is how we should uh, make oaths in the Old Testament. But the problem is that that leaves this practice open to abuse, right? So continue. Imagine, let's say, uh, evidence appears afterwards that in the next town over from where we live, uh, there's been a, a, a long-running scam, and these guys have been uh, stealing sheep all over the area. And they stole this guy's sheep, right? I didn't steal it. This other person stole it. And evidence presents to that fact. Now, what has happened based on that guy's oath, on my neighbor's oath? He's made an oath, right? But he has now abused that oath. He has misused the name of God, in other words, because he's undermined not only his own credibility, but now the credibility of God because he's attached it. Does that make sense? Right, okay. So, so basically, what happens then is that laws are given so that this doesn't happen, to prevent the abuse of God's name with oaths. So here's some examples. Exodus 20, verse seven, says, you shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Leviticus 19, 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of God. I am Yahweh. All right, so now there's these warnings that develop. Don't do this. This is dangerous to attach God's name falsely or frivolously to an oath. So with that in mind, what happens then is people... Do what people do. When there's rules in place, what do people try to do generally? Find a way around them, right? All right, so that's what they did. They stopped using God's name, and instead, they start using things that are associated with God's name, right? So that's what you get and what you read about and what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 5. He says, look, you're associating, using all these things that are associated with God, like the heavens, temple, your own life, And so what happens is this whole system of O's was created and it gets very technical. Which O's are more serious? Which O's deserve what level of punishment? And instead of helping people to speak honestly, which was the intent, it turns into this system of kind of smoke screens and workarounds, right? And Jesus, Jesus does not like this system. He is not happy 
about this. In fact, in Matthew 23, if you wanna flip over there real quick, hold your finger in Matthew five, but you can flip over to Matthew 23. This is what it says. Listen to what Jesus says about this whole system that's developed. He says, woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Flip back to Matthew 5. Jesus says almost the same thing, right? I tell you, don't swear by heaven. It's God's throne or by the earth. It's his footstool or by Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head. He goes on to say, all you need to do is say yes or no. See, Jesus says this whole system that's developed around O's is ridiculous, and it's obvious what you're doing. That's why he has such harsh language here. He says, you guys are playing games with your language. You're playing games with your language, and Jesus' problem is that this is not the way of God's people. You're abusing your words to manipulate people and situations. And it's this underlying abuse of language that really is at the heart of what Jesus is teaching here on O's. And I think the abuse of language, the abuse of language is incredibly relevant, incredibly relevant for us today. And so I wanna talk about that. So the abuse of language. Because what Jesus is exposing here is in our fallen, broken world, our language has the capacity, the power, right, to undermine our relationships with each other and with God. Our language has that power. Listen to this quote from Dallas Willard talking about this passage. He says this. He says, the essence of swearing, that is making oaths, is about invoking something or someone else, especially God, to make your words seem more significant and weighty. So the aim is to impress others with your seriousness or your piety so that you get what you want. It's a device of manipulation that is designed to override the judgment or input of others in order to use them for your purposes. You see, what Jesus says here is not just about first century O's. It's about how all of us use language Potentially to manipulate, to spin, to control, and even to abuse one another. So think about this, just in our cultural moment. We live in a day where almost everything is commodified, right? And our primary identity often in our cultural context is a consumer. And so what happens with that is we're constantly bombarded whether we realize it or not, constantly bombarded and shaped by words that are meant to manipulate us, right? Whether we realize it or not, every time we pull out our phone, we are bombarded by messages that have an intent to shape us, to move us, to get us to buy something or use something or believe something. And so that is the world 
that we live in. It's a world where language is constantly abused. Now, sometimes, and we all do this, we, 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 we swim in these waters, so it, it affects the way that we talk to each other. And so we all do it. We all use language this way. Sometimes it can seem rather innocent. I had a, a friend in college. Maybe you had a friend like this. I had a friend in college who was the most amazing storyteller. Like every weekend, he came back and he was like, you're not gonna believe this, and we couldn't. But what was funny is he would tell those same stories over and over again, and every time he told it, it would get better, right? It was even better than the last time I'd heard it, right? And he, just embellishment, right? Just exaggeration, using language, right? And that's a relatively innocent example, but there's other ways that we do similar things, right? Maybe you have a friend, I have friends like this who love to name drop, Mention the name of somebody that you were with or you had lunch with or you played golf with or just because they're a person of influence or they're a person that they think you might respect and by association, see how manipulative that can be? And sometimes we do these things and we don't even realize that we're doing them. As I was thinking about um, this in my own life this week, I, I, I realized there's a way that, that I do this. I abuse language and maybe you can relate to this. Um, Part of my challenge, my issue, is I have a really hard time saying no. I have a hard time saying no to people. Because I figured out at a very early age, the more you say yes, the more people like you, right? And the more that I would say yes, the more I would be convinced that people like me. Now, that reveals a very deep insecurity in me, right? It reveals an insecurity that actually drives me to say things I don't mean, okay? Because I have a hard time saying no, even though I know I can't do what I've just said I'm gonna do. I don't have time to call you. I don't have time to get together. I don't have time to do this with my kids. And yet, I say yes, 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 yes. And I don't know, does anybody else have this problem? I'm the only one with the overcommitment problem. But, you know, what's interesting is I've realized this. I've lived with this long enough, and I pray the Lord will help me grow in this. But I've realized in this, what happens is when I realize that I've done that, I'll call you and I don't call you. I feel ashamed. I feel guilt, right, that I didn't actually call you. And usually my response takes one of several forms. Either I'll feel ashamed and I'll make excuses. Maybe I'll get defensive. Um, Maybe I'll just try to ignore it and pretend like I never said I was gonna call you, right? But sometimes what happens is I compound the fact that I've messed up and I overpromise again, right? I double down on my false promise, on my abusive language. And I just bring that up because I think when, when Jesus says this, let your yes be yes and your no be no, James 5 says the same thing, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Let your language be simple. I think a lot of us need to learn the simple art of saying what we mean instead of what we think other people wanna hear. For me, it's the holy art of saying no. Sometimes I think we need to learn the discipline of being willing to say, you know what, I messed up. I told you I was gonna call you, and I didn't call you, and I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have told you I was gonna do that. Please forgive me instead of getting defensive and making excuses. And Jesus is saying, don't abuse language. Don't abuse your language. We all do it. 
We all lie, we all manipulate, prone to gossip, exaggerate, embellish. We airbrush versions of ourselves to the world. But that's not even the worst of it. You know, what's worse than that, and this is what Jesus really puts his finger on, what's worse than that is when we co-opt God into that effort. When we co-opt God into our effort, when we, when we say, you know, what we're doing and what we're saying actually grabs God's name and stamps it on top of it. We may not swear by God's name, but we all abuse God's language, and I think probably more than we realize. Maybe you've been in a conversation with another follower of Jesus, and they're talking about a decision they're making, and maybe they've said things, or maybe you yourself have said things like this, oh, well, I've prayed about this, or I have a sense of peace about this, or I have a check in my spirit about this. Now, let me just say, it's very possible that this person or I am saying those things because I've done those things. I mean those things, but I think it's equally possible and probably happens more, again, than we would care to admit, that we haven't really prayed, we haven't really sought the Lord, we haven't really sought scripture, we haven't really sought the counsel of wise people in our life, we haven't done any of those things, and what's actually taking place is we've got an agenda, and we're baptizing it with the name of Jesus. We're leveraging God's name for our agenda. And I just want to say, as a pastor, I am keenly aware of this danger, right? Anyone in church leadership, I don't care if you're a life group leader, if you're on leadership council, if you're a pastor, any role has to be conscious of how easy it is to set an agenda, to cast a vision, and then convince yourself that it's Jesus' agenda and Jesus' vision. So dangerous, and so easy to do. It's like the God trump card, right? You just throw that baby down and you can do and say whatever you want. It's how we act sometimes. And it's not honoring to him, it's not loving to him, it's a means to our own end or a means to control people and circumstances. And I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. That's why Jesus brings us up, the abuse of language. So our words and how and why we use them might be one of the biggest obstacles, I think, to truly loving God and one another, to living in faithful community as the body of Christ. And so the question is, how can Jesus help us with this problem? How can Jesus help us with our proneness to abuse language? Jesus invites us to do this, to live as people of love and not fear to live as people of love and not fear. Jesus is putting his finger on our propensity to use our words to hide, to hide from God and one another. I think that's what this comes down to. Our tendency to abuse language is our tendency to use words to hide the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is we're afraid. The truth is we are afraid and so we hide. Genesis 3.18, go all the way back to the beginning. God's created humanity for life with him and life together. And then the fall of humanity comes. I just wanna read this again, Genesis 3, 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid 
They hid from the Lord God. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Again, we were created to know God and be known by God and one another. That's what we were created for. And the tragic irony of our broken, fallen, sinful condition is that we're perpetually now hiding. And we all do it in our friendships, in our marriages, with our kids, whether it's politics, social media, in the church. We hide. We're prone to hiding. And so we spin, we twist, we manipulate, we hide because we are afraid. We're afraid of being naked, of being exposed, of being seen for who we really are. Not just who we pretend to be, but the real us, the real us. With all our insecurities and our flaws and our mistakes and our wounds, all the things about our life we we hope no one ever finds out. And so in our sin and our shame, we hide. So how do we stop hiding in fear? 1 John 4.18 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And what is love? 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, Jesus was God's love among us. He was God's love that came into the world and found us as a people who were hiding and hurt and broken and messed up. And he came not to punish us, but to take the punishment that we deserved on himself, on the cross. See, Jesus... He's made this incredible offer to you and me, a life free from fear, a life instead of love, a life where we don't have to hide anymore, a life where we don't have to be scared of being seen or being known, which means that we can be truly loved. That's who we are in Christ. That's who you are in Christ, fully known and fully loved. And I think the challenge for us is to live as people who know and believe that. Who know and believe that we are known and we are loved. That you are not defined by your sin, by your flaws, by your failures. You are defined by the unwavering, unconditional love of your creator. A love that frees you to live a life full of meaning and purpose and joy and beauty. If we know that, we are free. Free from basing our lives on what other people think of us or say of us or our mistakes or our past. Free to be who we were created to be. So what does that mean for you specifically? Honestly, I don't know. I think... There's as many applications of this as there are people in the room. 
because it touches on every word we speak, every relationship we have. And I think that's why it's so important that we gather here on Sundays, that we come into the presence of Jesus again and again and again, to be reminded of who he is and because of who he is, who we are. It's important that we come here again and again and hear the truth that we are loved, that we can come here and confess our need for God's forgiveness, and that we can come to this table and receive the bread and the wine to remind us, tangible reminders, that God has given everything on the cross out of his love for us. That's who we are, precious to him. That is what love is that Jesus gave his life on the cross for our sins. And so my prayer is today and every Sunday when we leave here that we are reminded of that, who we are, and that we can then live as a new humanity, free from fear, free to speak plainly and simply and honestly in love to one another. Amen.